From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. She was on the verge of moving into her own place. Then coronavirus struck, gigs got canceled, and she'll be staying at her parents' house. One story among millions in Colorado as we document the disruptions of COVID-19. We want your stories, too. Then, a guy you mostly don't hear from when it's smooth sailing. Colorado State Treasurer today on where the state's reserves stand. Plus, prisons closed to visitors. They'll try to make up the difference with phone calls, maybe video visitation, but... We can't replace that fully, and that's what made this decision so difficult. And some fun on this Friday the 13th. We explore a mountain hotel known for its ghostly patrons. People would see a woman figure standing in the window here, almost like she's parting the curtains in a V. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we'll start with a prediction that came true. Just over two weeks ago, the phrase significant disruption emerged in a telephone briefing with the CDC. Dr. Nancy Messonnier was urging the country and her own household to get ready for COVID-19. And I told my children that we as a family need to be preparing for significant disruption of our lives. We are seeing that disruption now. Long lines for testing, canceled events, school closures, telework. As another family, the Colorado family, goes through this, we will be here with the facts and figures. The state's treasurer, for instance, is standing by to talk about what kind of reserves Colorado has to weather this. But we also want to share your stories of disruption, how your life is changing, and in a time of real uncertainty, where you're finding hope. In a few minutes, I'll tell you how to send us those stories. But let's dive into one now. This is a story about being self-employed and having gigs canceled. Kali, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is author Kali Fajardo-Anstein. 2020 was shaping up to be a banner year for her. Her new collection of short stories has rocked the literary world. But, uh, Kali, I understand virtually your entire calendar of speaking engagements from March to May is canceled as organizers try to stop the spread of coronavirus. You had stops in Tucson, Chicago, Boston, Denver. Uh, when did all those cancellations start rolling in? They, they really hit hard this week. Um, there were grumblings about it a couple weeks ago. Um, and after South by Southwest canceled, I think it sort of set the standard for all the festivals, which I definitely think is the right call. Um, but yeah, this morning I woke up and I saw even more cancellations. So virtually my entire calendar for this quarter of the year is, is wiped out. We know that there are now major concerns about big gatherings of people in an emergency declaration in Denver just yesterday. Mayor uh, Hancock says avoid large gatherings. And so uh, your experience is a reflection of what's happening. I I know that you do not take issue with these decisions to cancel. I'm curious, though, what effect they have on you financially. Yeah, definitely. So um, this is how I earn my income is speaking. Um, I think a lot of people think authors are they're making money off their books. But for some of us, that takes several years to earn out our advances. Um, So this was going to be the majority of my income for the year. I had found the most perfect apartment for me, dream apartment from 1906 in Congress Park, um, and I adored it. And I went to go sign the lease yesterday, and I I projected my income for the year, and I was like, I can't do this. I cannot put myself into an apartment right now. Um, So it's it's going to be a serious 
uh, thing I have to work around. I have my family and my community to help support me. But yeah, I've I've lost all of my income for the next several months. And so you'll continue living with your parents despite having a, yeah. <laughs> yes, a, I will. a, a best-selling book. I know that this has really gotten you to think about artists and in general those in the gig economy uh, who, who don't have you know, a, a steady job uh, in the classical sense. Tell me about your thinking right now. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, this is a really scary, uncertain time. Um, I have performer friends that, you know, again, like their entire income for the next several months has been wiped out. And not everyone has a family that can help support them or a community that can. And so I think we need to really be checking in on the gigging artists, the musicians, performers, the actors, and just see how they're doing. But also the bookstores um, and the venues that are going to be losing out on these sales and these ticket sales and things like that. What are you hearing right now from other artists? The same sorts of fears that you have? Yeah, and I, I think it definitely, so a lot of artists are saying, well, at least I have a savings account. I'm so happy I have a savings account. And for many of us, that hasn't been an option as we've lived sporadic paycheck to paycheck. And so I think this is just making a lot of artists um, think more about the future and think about it in a different way. Yeah, and question how much you can save, whether you can save. And I, I think that there's a universality to this, Kali, that extends far beyond even the arts world. Do you think that's true? Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of us are we're facing some, you know, serious financial uncertainty right now. Thank you for checking in with us. I appreciate it. Thank Kali. you so much. Kali Fajardo Anstein of Denver. She's the author of Sabrina and Karina. And we realize that's just one story of disruption in the face of coronavirus. We figure there are five point seven million of them to tell. It's the population of Colorado. And so share yours. How's your life changing? We think especially with schools closing uh, that there is a lot of disruption in parents' lives at this moment, and we are very interested in hearing from them. So record a voice memo and send it to us, Colorado Matters at CPR.org. Again, Colorado Matters at CPR.org for your voice, voice memo explaining how your life's being disrupted. The stock market just had its worst day in 33 years with all the uncertainty around coronavirus. No doubt people are thinking about their bank accounts, perhaps their retirement portfolios. They can weather the crisis. State government's doing essentially the same thing, watching accounts that are used to pay state workers and maintain highways. Colorado's treasurer is Dave Young. And Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. How are you? I'm Doing okay. Hanging in there. Good. Certainly a lot of news to cover. Uh, Does the state invest in stocks, first off? I think that's the natural first question. Well, we don't. And and first, let me just say thank you for the opportunity to to come in today. I know people are concerned. They want to know about the safety of our tax dollars. And uh, hopefully what we talk about today is going to put some people, people's minds at ease. Well, yeah, to hear no, we don't invest in stocks, I suppose, might put folks at ease, given what the Dow uh, has been doing. Well, the markets are really up and down. I think we've seen that. Uh, we have three things that we really focus on. Uh, we focus on safety of the tax dollars. We focus on liquidity and yield in that order. So safety is the number one 
uh, thing that we do. And tax dollars are not then heavily invested in the stock market. Please help us understand. Yeah, tax dollars are not invested in the, st- in the stock market at all. So we, we actually invest in the bond market, um, some commercial paper, money market funds, but it's all very high quality investments and very safe. Uh, that does mean, though, that the state relies on interest rates, no doubt. Yes. Uh, and we know that the Fed has cut interest rates. That will no doubt mean less interest income for the state? Well, that's true to an extent. But, you know, we manage uh, first for safety. We do look at yield and we want to be sure that we are returning as good a yield as we can. Uh, you can't just leave your money in a bank account um, and expect much in the way of interest, but you well, can uh, invest wisely and safely and de- get better return on your investment. What sources of state revenue are you most concerned about right now? Well, I think, you know, we're waiting to see what impact this is going to have on a variety of sectors in our economy. Uh, we just heard our previous uh, uh, interview uh, that uh, the gig economy may be impacted. Uh, certainly, uh, we saw um, Saudi Arabia flood the markets on Monday with uh, very inexpensive oil, which has now resulted to the benefit of those going to the gas pump with lower gas pump prices, but it also is going to result then in lower uh, severance tax revenues that come in. Okay, we so pro- I hear severance tax revenues is being an area of concern for you. This right. is obviously a state with considerable oil and gas development. What what else? Well, and, and the impact of that isn't going to be felt right away mm. on severance tax. That's always a year or two years later. So uh, these impacts don't just happen immediately. Fascinating. So you will have your eye on the long view here. Well, we uh, always do. <laughs> what, what about what about more immediate tax concerns? Uh, if people aren't spending in stores, for instance, help right. us understand. Sales, sales tax may be down. Income tax may be down. Uh, interestingly, we are right at this moment uh, in the budget development cycle where on Tuesday, March 17th, uh, the experts that we have in two different agencies in state government will come to the Joint Budget Committee, the JBC. This I is the, the powerful holder of the purse strings at the state campus. Right. And I served for four years on that uh, committee. And Indeed. so I'm familiar with these uh, presentations that are done quarterly. The 17th, we're actually going to have uh, the two agencies come with their forecasters that study this in great detail, and they will actually talk about what the revenue picture will look like. And so, how do you forecast when the economy is in a sort of free fall right now? <clears throat> that seems tremendously difficult. It is It is challenging, but it's not the only time that we've seen this. So I think that the people that do this for a living uh, know how to actually look at the bigger picture, but it's going to be an ongoing process. This is why they report every quarter. So what in history might provide some context to forecasters and to you, Dave Mm -hmm. Young, as treasurer going forward? What does this look like to you? Is it resembling 9-11? What in history can guide you going forward? You know, I think uh, there are some things that that are very unique about what's happened in the last week that um, are going to have to be evaluated. Fortunately, even in my office, we have investment uh, officers that study this on a daily basis and are really been working not just in the last week but over several months to move our investments to higher quality investments. So you are actively moving investments now or you're looking at what at, investments to move to? Oh, yes, both. Both. Okay. Yeah, have been and will continue. So that's As a, a result of coronavirus. Well, no, we were doing that all the way along. That is a that is an exercise that we do all the time okay. in that office to to ensure the tax dollars are safe. 
The state has a reserve that it's been building for several years now. Governor Polis set a goal of 7.5%, I believe. Where does that stand now? Help us understand how long the state sort of go on that reserve. Well, you know, seven seven and a half percent is uh, is a sizable re- uh, reserve. It kind of depends on where the impacts are as far as revenue is concerned, and how quickly those come back again. Um, where is the reserve right now? The goal was seven point five percent. Yeah, so seven seven point two five percent is the current uh, reserve. Okay, so and you're the shy goal, of that goal is to move that to seven and a half percent. Actually, uh, the Treasury had been working with uh, both the Office of State Planning and Budgeting and the Controller's Office on a long-range plan to actually uh, develop what's called a rainy day fund. So we have a reserve, but we're the only state in the nation to not have a rainy day fund. And a rainy day fund is a little bit different kind of reserve of money because you put guardrails on how that money can be spent. What we learned, and you asked about, well, what what in history do we have to no. inform us? Well, we have two pretty significant recessions that occurred. We're really not in a recession right now, um, but we are certainly experiencing a bear market and a downturn. But it does signal the fact that we do need to be smarter about how we deal with this. And Why doesn't Colorado have a rainy day fund? Uh, we have not uh, made the commitment to do that. So this is why our group has come forward to the Joint Budget Committee and said we should really think about this. Um, one of the things that we learned from the last two recessions is that the impact doesn't just happen immediately after the downturn. And this is why I talked about severance tax playing out in a longer way. Uh, We really need to have a three- or four-year plan. And this is what we're trying to work with the Joint Budget Committee to develop. So help me understand. The state has a reserve, but it doesn't have a rainy day fund. How does that make it vulnerable then? Just to speak to people who don't speak budgeting, Dave Young. Well, you know, I think uh, what happens is you see that we have this uh, amount of money there and the tendency since there are no guardrails on it, is to spend it right away to uh-huh. mitigate problems. What we've, what we've learned is is that the impacts are felt over three or four years. So a rainy day fund would have guardrails that would say, we're only going to spend uh, a third of that rainy day fund per year over a three-year or three year period. Can say. you tap the reserve because of coronavirus? Uh, certainly. Uh, joint, jo- I can't, but the Joint Budget Committee can. Do you imagine revenue cuts on the horizon? I'm sorry, spending cuts. Pardon me. I think that's possible. I, I Again, it's, it's a little difficult for the Joint Budget Committee to budget in the face of this kind of um, wildly oscillating markets. And I think over time, we're going to be have, have a better picture of that. And I, again, our forecasters are going to give us, I think, a better long-range lo- uh, look at this. So much will be revealed next week, it sounds Tuesday, like. Tuesday the 17th. It is also true that much will be revealed perhaps in months and years, given how uh, the effects of these economic hits can be long-lasting. Dave, thank you for being with us. Ryan, thank you so much. Dave Appreciate Young it. is Colorado State Treasurer. Let's talk about how a community of some 20,000 people is affected by novel coronavirus. We're not talking about a town. 20,000 is the number of people in the state's prisons. And there are, of course, parolees and corrections officers. Dean Williams leads corrections in Colorado. His department, for now, won't allow prison visitors, whether it's family or volunteers. It's a step that we didn't take lightly. In fact, we've been toiling over it the last few days because family visits and outside volunteers who come in is tremendously important for 
the inmate population, but it's also very, very important for us as well in terms of just providing a purposeful environment behind prison walls. And so that's a very serious step for us. I, in fact, am sending a letter to all the inmates to make sure that they understand that we did this for their protection as much as we were doing it for our own. Our entire goal in all of this is to avoid, if at all possible, getting COVID-19 behind the walls. That's our, our main priority right now. Because it strikes me that the nature of a prison is you have many people in fairly close quarters. What are the stakes if you find that COVID-19 has entered a facility? And what steps would you take at that point? Would you clear a section of a prison? Uh, Help us understand the thinking. It's a serious implication if COVID-19 gets behind the prison walls. There's no sugarcoating that, and that's the reason why we're taking all steps necessary to avoid that happening. If that did happen, it would depend upon the level of the outbreak and how many people were impacted. If it's one or two or three, that would be one thing. If it's 30, that would be another. If it's 300, that completely is another. So the plans on that are somewhat fluid depending upon the circumstances. Clearly, if we can isolate a smaller number, you know, we would sort of put all hands on deck to make sure we could, you know, put people in isolation in a certain facility without the risk of exposure to others. So it really depends upon what level of exposure might happen behind the walls. But I'll just repeat, our first line of defense really is preventing COVID-19 from getting into the prisons in the first place. But if that did happen, we, we're already doing tabletop exercises on what prisons would look like, where would we, we would have people, and should we try to move them all to one prison, for example. And so we're, we're tabletopping those exercises as we speak. As for family visits, do you have the literal bandwidth to ensure that there can be a commensurate number of video visits to make up for the lack of visits in person? We don't have the bandwidth to make up for video visits that would make up completely for the in-person visits that people are not getting. Also, what is a little bit hard is that we've done a lot and we'll continue when this is over to we've done family, you know, unification events that are many hours long, like a day long, that clearly we can't do now. So I am pushing us as much as possible. We do have actually we're about ready to start piloting a tablet visitation program uh, that we're advancing now. We're going to do that. We're also working with one of the companies to expand telephone access and telephone opportunities. It's certainly not going to make up for the loss of visitation, though, to be very clear. We can't replace that fully, and that's what made this decision so difficult. And I imagine the same applies to volunteers that can't go into prisons now. I know that that programming they provide must be very important to inmates, and that's part of the balance here. How, how long do you think these actions might be in place? The goal amongst everyone right now is to flatten the spread of COVID-19. I think we're going to take this one, you know, sometimes one day at a time, but one a week at a time. We'll review this on a very regular basis because visitation is so uh, greatly important. And these other programs that you mentioned, uh, the theater programs and music and other services and things that we're doing are really very, very important. And I I've been advancing those since I've been in this job. I mean, it's the whole one of the things that's our cornerstone. 
So we'll review it and change it up as soon as we can. Uh, if we can make it to this, get to the summer and this flattens out and we can relax it in some locations. If, for example, for some prisons that either just not anything in that county and we think they're really really safe in a county, maybe we would open up at certain prisons. So I want to be nimble on this. I don't want it to be one size fits all. It's just that we took this action right now to set a baseline to really try to protect the prisons as much as possible from it being uh, introduced. Now, I imagine every day some number of new inmates enter the system. Are they being screened for the disease? Screening, yes. Testing, no, because testing wouldn't be appropriate in everyone who comes in, of course. But we are screening everyone who comes into the prison system in terms of inmate population. But we're also providing, you know, we have criteria in terms of how we're even screening staff. And so we're creating a routine and really developing this sort of a diligence around First of all, sanitation habits and washing hands and doing all those right things personally, but also is anyone at risk in any way who's coming to us, including even our staff. As for hand washing for inmates, uh, it has to be soap and water, not hand sanitizer, because hand sanitizer contains alcohol. I think the fear there is that it might be consumed. I do understand that you're thinking of how you might introduce hand sanitizer in a kind of monitored way. Have you figured that out yet? You know, my staff are going back out and we're taking hand sanitizers back to locations where maybe we wouldn't just because of the circumstances and we're using it in a way that's more supervised or controlled than what we might use it. And you're right, there's a very, very small number of inmates who may be tempted to actually drink hand sanitizer, as crazy as that may sound, it's 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 an issue we have to deal with. But as we know, I mean, soap and water not only is as good, but actually better. And so I don't think we're really limiting uh, an inmate's ability to keep their hands clean. The DOC's responsibilities extend beyond prisons, of course. Parolees who are sick or particularly vulnerable, I understand, will not be required to come into a parole office. What do you do to ensure they remain compliant with the terms of their parole? Showing up at a parole office is only one very small component of remaining in compliance. So our staff will be making home visits, doing a little, a few more home visits uh, or worksite visits. And so we've just replaced them coming to the office of, of having us go to them. So we're still maintaining close contact with parolees. It's just that we're not requiring those folks, that small group, to actually come into the office anymore. Dean, thanks for being with us. Take care, Ryan. Thank you. Dean Williams is executive director of the Colorado Department of Corrections. He joined us by phone from Colorado Springs. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. This is CPR News. CPR News is here to answer your questions about newly confirmed coronavirus cases in Colorado. With CPR, we promise you'll get the facts and not the hype. Go to CPR.org for the latest on what we know from the scientific and health communities and what you can do in your daily life. Get up-to-date information and sign up for The Lookout, our daily newsletter. That's all at CPR.org. Artificial intelligence shows up in more places these days, including one spot Denverite's Kevin Beatty didn't expect— It's a century-old theology school whose leaders hope research in ethics and technology will help them stay relevant. 
I'm sitting in a conference room with three researchers at the Iliff School of Theology, and I've been asked to respond to a pretty deep philosophical question. So what is happiness? And we just need a little feedback. Oh, this is like such a hard question, you guys. <laughs> happiness is a state of balance. Okay, we'll go with that. So I'm just going to throw the conversation back at the model, and we'll see what the model says in response. This is data scientist Justin Barber. The model he's talking about is an artificial intelligence bot that he hopes someday soon might talk about complicated stuff like this in chat rooms with Isle of students to challenge them and help them think deeper about their studies. Now, the bot just outputs answers as text, but I fed it into a voice generator for this story, and I asked them what they thought about that. Okay. Happiness is a state of mind. It is a mental experience of satisfaction with the good or the bad things in one's life. That's beautiful. <laughs> how is it that people can be more or less satisfied with their lives as a whole? And how, if anything, is this related to their income? That's a great question. It's a good question, I think. Right? Barbara trained the bot on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, so it's got a knack for diving deep like this. The whole thing may seem like an odd marriage of technology and philosophy, but ILF has long been the place to reckon with moral questions. And Barber's team hopes that its AI experiment will help the school change with the times. There was a time when clergy served a central place in, in the role of a leader in a community, of an opinion maker in a community. But those roles are diminishing in terms of the perceived authority. Tom Wolfe is ILIF's president and CEO. What we are doing at ILIF is recognizing that we are in this cultural shift so that we align ourselves and what we have to offer with the world in a much more meaningful way. The AI Institute and a new Center for Environmental Justice are part of an effort to build what Wolf calls the new ILIF. It's a new way for the 19th century school to interact with the world. Wolf is betting both of these emerging fields will need strong ethical foundations, and he wants ILIF to be a source of those discussions. When it comes to AI, the idea is to make sure that robots automating our world don't discriminate. And that's actually happened already before. In 2018, Amazon scrapped a hiring algorithm when the company realized it was eliminating women from its pool. Here's Michael Hemingway, co-chair of the AI Institute. We have seen a lot of systems that have used AI and machine learning in ways that have been harmful to populations, right? We've seen racist, sexist, all kinds of things. There aren't strictly technical solutions to that. Their big idea is really low-tech, and it goes like this. If you want to build AI, you should have an advisory committee made up of a bunch of diverse people, and you should be super transparent about the decisions they make when it's time to tweak the bot. The fear is someone, somewhere, will, say, build a bot that helps judges decide who makes parole, and then that starts skewing against black people. The first part of that is already happening, for what it's worth. The Isle of Team would like these transparent systems to become the norm. So in some ways, this is a moment where we can actually reorient toward the future for the social good. It's why Barber, Hemingway, and Wolf say a theology school is actually a pretty good place to tinker with robots that can think. We know that when we come here, we're going to engage the moral discourse. We're going to get the ethics of it. And, and we're going to read texts that are going to make us think critically about the world. But for all that high-minded talk, the machine, it can occasionally sound... Kinda, well, you'll see. The philosophers of the East and the West, the Buddhist and the Hindus and the Confucians and the Buddhists and Hindus say is it that which is a state that is not a state. That is a state. And it's not a state. It's not a state that is not a state. This is hard stuff. And both their ethical process and their code are still works in progress. I'm Kevin Beatty with Dembright.
When schools cut budgets, one of the first things that tends to go is arts funding. A program called Bringing Music to Life works to offset that. It collects instruments, fixes them up, and gives them to schools in need across the state, including High Point Academy. A donation last year allowed the music teacher to build a program from the ground up. Colorado Matters producer Natasha Watts was there as it all started. On a normal day, the basement of the Newman Center for the Performing Arts might sound like this. Because this is where DU music students practice. But once a year, the halls fill with music teachers from across the state. They've come to collect bins full of donations from the Bringing Music to Life instrument drive. Here's more what that's like. I was at the event last August. I watched as teachers walked into a room filled with tables, each with a sign denoting the school those instruments should go to. There were lots of clarinets, violins, trumpets. One lucky teacher won the sole tuba in a raffle drawing. And the tuba goes to Northfield High School. After wandering the halls a bit, I found another teacher with a unique donation they received for their school. My name is Jessica Lawden, and I'm the K-8 music specialist at High Point Academy. I'm currently loading my brand new 25 acoustic guitars into a bin to uh, take them to my school. High Point Academy receives Title I assistance from the federal government because much of the student population comes from low-income families. Lawden says the school didn't even have a music program before she started there. We had nothing. We were working out of a school library. And so coming in with a full classroom set of guitars means that there's going to be a one-to-one student ratio. Every single student's going to get their hands on an instrument every day. That was in August. A month later, I visited one of Lawden's classes to see the new guitars in action. Three things about picks. Number one, hold it by the wide end only. Lawden is certified by Little Kids Rock, a nonprofit that focuses on music education using pop, rock, and hip-hop. Music education has unfortunately been the same for about 50 to 100 years in a lot of ways. We still teach in most cases the same instruments, the same songs. I say that everyone I talk to as an adult might forget like their social security number or their telephone number, but they will never forget how to play hot cross buns on the recorder because that's unfortunately the way it's always been. And there's a really alarming amount of students dropping out of music lessons and a lot of schools getting rid of music as we know. And it's really heartbreaking to see that without the buy-in from the kids, music is just dying off. And so this program came along and trains teachers how to teach, first of all, uh, with non-necessarily standard notation. We are really making it accessible for kids who haven't had 15, you know, all, all their lives worth of music lessons to be able to read notes on a staff. That really hinders a lot of kids from playing the music they want to play when we say you have to learn to read before you play it. It's like saying you have to know every single letter before we allow you to speak. One sixth grader I met was Novella Law. She taught herself ukulele before even coming to Miss Lawden's class, mostly through online tutorials. She was excited to see the guitars when she walked into class this year. I was really happy because I realized that we were going to be doing more stuff than we did last year, and we didn't get to do that much last year. And we did a show, a winter performance, and it was with, like, bells and, like, xylophones. Novella has big plans for her future. I don't know if this is going to happen, but I want to be, like, Maybe a professional ukulele player. I can't speak right sometimes. Um, But 
if that, I'm probably going to be a zoologist, maybe. But um, music is one of the top things I do. After class finished, I asked Lauden how class was going with the new guitars. It's surprisingly going a lot better than I thought, because I see the kids for 40 minutes per class, and we rotate, so I might see some kids once a week. So I thought I'd have to reteach so many things about just procedures and routines, how to hold the guitars, how to make sure we are putting them away carefully and correctly. But there has been, I think, so much buy-in from them that they know the more time we have to spend practicing how to hold it, the less time they get to spend playing it. I kept in touch with Miss Lauden through High Point's first semester with the guitars. I checked in with the class again at the end of the term. It was the last day of class before winter break. Needless to say, energy was high. While some kids talked and played games, others rewatched videos of the end of term showcase concert. One favorite seemed to be a rowdy class performance of a post Malone song, Better Now. I found Novella Law again to ask how the semester had gone. I am a lot better since the beginning of the year. I started learning this one song and then uh, our teacher, she started teaching us a lot more and that helped me like be way better at it and I was really happy about that. So Lauden told me that despite moments of struggle, students continued to surprise her with their investment in the music program. The week before the concert, I left it open to all of the grades I was seeing, that if they wanted to come in and do extra practice time during their lunch or their recess, I would be here. And I figured I'd see, you know, two or three kids, like those those specific kids that really asked for that during class. And I was overwhelmed on, like, day two when probably 15 third graders walk in, set their trays down, and they're just eating their food, getting ready to hop right onto an instrument. And I think at the most I had... Somewhere in the realm of 18 kids in here at once, I basically had a full class size, a mix of third graders and sixth graders who all were in here a few days before the concert wanting to work on their material. Before class got out, Lauden had a few words with the students. Every class ends up having its own personality. And so you guys were like, you guys were my hidden treasure. And I, I'm going to look back when I have my next group this next semester, and I know I'm going to miss your guys' energy and your focus and your personalities, and I'm going to miss those moments when I saw you guys get it like you did this year. So I don't have anything big for you, but I do have a little souvenir. I wasn't able to go out and buy anything, but all of the song lyrics from every song in the concert, as well as all the instrument parts from every song in the concert. I asked the kids to say one word about music class as they left. It went about as well as you might expect. Awesome. Fun. 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 Rhythm. Creative. It's amazing. Bye. Enthusiastic. I am the best. Lauden, as usual, seemed unfazed by her students' antics. Perfection was never her goal. My reason for going into music education is not to create the next concert pianist or the next Ariana Grande or whoever comes down the line, but I feel like every single student needs to walk away with an appreciation for the arts so that we are creating a society of advocates and nobody is walking into a scenario like these kids walked into themselves where there was no music. I never want them to be passive or just let the arts die without giving a fighting chance, and I want them to be the warriors for that. I'm Natasha Watts, CPR News.
This is the 10th year for bringing music to life. It's given nearly 5,000 instruments to more than 230 music programs across Colorado. We double-checked, and even in light of coronavirus, they are still accepting donations through Sunday. One final note, Colorado Public Radio is a supporting partner of bringing music to life. For Friday the 13th, we'll take you to Victor in the mountains southwest of Colorado Springs. It's a former gold mining town with fewer than 500 people, but it is full of ghost stories, especially at the Black Monarch Hotel, which has embraced the ghoulish reputation after the new owner renovated it last year. Producer Xandra McMahon visited the hotel during a horror writer's retreat. I feel like I need to start this story with my journey just getting to the hotel. It was a very windy day in Colorado, and the mountain roads were completely snow-covered. I finally get to Victor, and the town is dead. I mean, it's the off-season, so no huge surprise there. But I still couldn't shake this feeling that I've suddenly entered the plot of The Shining. Windy roads, howling wind, creepy mountain hotel, empty, wintry landscape. I find the main entrance to the Black Monarch Hotel, and it's just a plain black door. I walk inside and enter a pitch-black hallway. Like, can't see your hand in front of your face so dark. So I get out my flashlight, hoping I can find a door or stairs to the main lobby, something. I do find some stairs, and as I'm walking up them, I kid you not, the theme music to The Shining starts playing. At this point, I'm fully spooked and thinking that I might be hallucinating this music, but I find a door with lots of light coming from underneath it and thankfully found alive people on the other side, not ghosts. And what are they doing? They're watching The Shining. Today we were talking about what are those light bulb moments, like in this movie we're watching here, The Shining. Stephen King had the what-if moment when he was staying at the um, Stanley Hotel, and they were closing up for the season, and it was him and his wife and his kid, and he said, like, well, what if we were here snowed in for the whole season, and then also playing in themes of anger with parenting and alcoholism, and it all kind of came together, but it started with just that little idea of, like, wouldn't it be creepy if... Josiah Hesse organized this haunted writer's retreat. For a week at the end of February, 10 writers spent time at the hotel. Not all of them chose to actually sleep there, but they were all there to feed off the hotel's creepiness and get inspired. This place has a lot of stories of hauntings, and it definitely has a lot of history. But at the same time, it's like a Disneyland ride, you know, with uh, these serial killer-themed rooms and the witchcraft room, and it's just all so fun and almost touristy, but in in a really smart and charming way. It's not so over... Nobody's going to be overwhelmed with fear to the point where they can't write or think. The hotel's publicist, Aaron Barnes, offered to show me around and give me the history of the place. We started in a room that's not themed around a serial killer, the Tesla room. So in 1899, there was a fire that leveled all of Victor, or most of it, and it leveled this building too. At that time, I think that it was a brothel, a saloon, and a casino. And then W.S. Sexton was the proprietor. He decided to rebuild it, and he rebranded it as the finest gentleman's club this side of the Mississippi. So across the street is the Fortune Club, and that also used to be a brothel. But that one was more for the miners, and this one was sort of the upper class place. So yeah, it was the monarch for a really long time. I believe it 
changed hands and became an art gallery for a while. And then it was abandoned for much of the 90s. And during that time, a lot of people would see a woman figure standing in the window here in the Tesla room, this corner window. So people on the street would see a woman standing with her arms up in the air, almost like she's parting the curtains in a V. And so they would call the police and the police would come and no one would be here. So that was something that people saw a lot. Barnes says the Tesla room is where the most hauntings are reported, even though it's the least scary of the bunch. There are also rumors that the original Monarch Hotel was wired by Tesla. Our next stop was the Forest Witch Room. That's where I met Sammy Moore, a poet and writer at the retreat. It's a really cool room. (laughs) It's a little weird. There's a suspended bed, and so it, it moves. Every time I roll over, it moves. Last night... I rolled over and it was moving back and forth and then it just stopped. It was like someone grabbed it. But it wasn't scary. And a few minutes later, the ropes, there are four ropes anchoring it to the ceiling. One of the ropes, it was like someone grabbed it and pulled it. It did this kind of like noise and it moved and I could see it move. And it felt like whatever had stopped the bed originally didn't get the response it wanted So it like upped the game a little bit. Hotel guests can also stay in rooms themed after H.H. Holmes and Elizabeth Bathory, the Hungarian noblewoman and serial killer who allegedly bathed in her victim's blood. That room is very red, as you can imagine. Owner Adam Zimmerly is still working on the renovation with more spooky rooms to come. But one space the owners aren't really sure what to do with yet is the very creepy basement, which you can only access from outside, like a cellar entrance almost. This was like really hard to get up. It's secured with a twisty tie. Oh, <laughs> not too worried about people coming yeah, in here? No, nobody really is beating down this door. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell me again time. what the purpose of this space is. Some people think that it was used as a makeshift morgue. And Adam recently hired an architecture firm to take measurements of this whole building. But the one guy who was tasked with measuring this Oh, basement. Oh <laughs> <That> <laughs> <you caught> me? <laughs> a little bag of chips flew by, a little trash uh, ghost uh, there. Yeah. Um, so the guy who was tasked with measuring this basement actually just could not do it. He just, he was like, I gotta go. I can't do this. So oh the measurements here, Adam doesn't really have a good sense of the measurements down here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yep. A chip bag brushing against my foot is the closest I got to a supernatural experience. I did ask the other guests if they have any stories. Josiah Hesse did. And it's a common one, apparently. My mind was on high alert last night with every little thing. But there was a moment where... I did hear one kind of haunting story that is reported to us twice a month. Which is the noise of a party. Really raucous party. It it was very brief, but a crowd of people, uh, some laughing. Women laughing and men shouting. Glasses tinkling, a piano playing. And that's the thing that repeats itself like twice a month. Hesse isn't sure if he was just expecting to hear the party or if it was a ghostly encounter. But at the same time... I was primed for it. I've heard these stories. I was in a kind of twilight moment of like half awake, half asleep. So it's hard to say, but we're here for our imaginations. 
And so whether it's real or not, you know, proving that ghosts exist, is the supernatural real? That's not necessarily what we're up to. We're here to jack up our imaginations and explore all those different vivid corners of our minds. At the Black Monarch Hotel in Victor, Colorado, I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. There's a new backcountry skiing experience in Colorado. CPR's Stina Sieg takes us there. No chairlifts rotate up the mountainside at Bluebird Backcountry. No tall hotel announces its presence. Instead, there's just a small sign off the isolated highway between Kremling and Steamboat Springs and a big white tent filled with smiling faces, flushed with cold. And did you get a trail map? Uh, No, No, that would be good. A volunteer checks in snowboarder Jeremy Bard. He's here looking for what he's found in the backcountry before. There's just this serenity, just this kind of silence. Bard carefully peels the protective layer off a pair of skins. Damn it. Think of them like grippy slipper socks that let you hike uphill in your equipment. He sticks the skins to the bottoms of his board, now split in two. He straps one onto each foot, adjusts his poles, and double-checks his pack for his safety gear and snacks. He gets that this is definitely less efficient than typical resort skiing. But it's not to get the most turns. You want to kind of just get the best turns. But those turns, or ski runs, can feel unattainable if you're intimidated by the skill and responsibility the backcountry requires. Bluebird co-founder Eric Lambert puts it this way. The distance between the ski areas and the true backcountry is so enormous that there really should be something in between that helps people bridge that gap. That something is Bluebird. Backcountry light, he calls it. It's now open for a month-long trial, offering rental gear, avalanche-controlled terrain, and maybe most important, training. How's everybody doing today, first of all? Sam Gifford heads one of the daily beginner classes, which goes into detail on technique, gear, and safety. It's a lot to consider, so much more than at a regular resort. But for Laura Knopp, there's a reason she's here and not there. $200. The price of a high-end lift ticket. Her friend Amanda Hoberg pipes in. And too many people. <laughs> $200 and too many people. <laughs> By contrast, Bluebird's only $50, with a daily limit of 300 people. Some in this small class are like Knopp, with a bit of backcountry under their belt. But many are like Hoberg, total newbies. All right. Everybody ready to go? Yep. Sounds good. They take off in a pack of puffy jackets, cutting through what looks like a slab of white frosting up toward the rocky peak and shimmering aspens in front of them. I do my best to keep up. My very first time on backcountry skis. Oh, it's exhausting. <laughs> Embarrassingly so. Huh. Well, yeah, you're using different muscles than you might normally use. <laughs> That's co-founder Eric Lambert again trying to make me feel better about being the slowest person on the mountain. Bluebird wants to welcome novices, like me, and those with more experience. For them, it offers convenience, 
the freedom to explore the backcountry without having to round up a crowd of friends for safety. 63-year-old Mark Holmberg skins up next to us. I'm a Georgia boy, (laughs) so uh, I need to go with people. (laughs) Holmberg says he loves backcountry skiing because he gets to explore places like this. But as we look out over the sparkling white acres around us, with only a few dots of people under a bright blue sky, he corrects himself. Well, I don't know of any place like this. Uh, it's, It's special. Several tiring minutes later, we all reach a warming hut and a flock of people talking about their runs and falls. Laura Knopp from the class is sipping a Coors banquet and waiting on her first-timer friend, Amanda Hoberg, to snowboard down. You're almost here! She glides to a stop in the deep, powdery snow. Oh my gosh. How was it? You know, it was a struggle, but that's what we're out here for, right? So. so, her burning feet are worth it. The price of knowing she can make it up a mountain and back down again under her own steam. On a peak in Grand County, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And before we go, a farewell to a valued member of our staff who's moving on. This is Colorado Matters producer and reporter Anthony Cotton's last day. Most recently, you heard him reporting from Selma as a Colorado man walked in some storied civil rights footsteps. Anthony also brought us lots of sports and political coverage. And we'll miss him. Good luck in the next chapter. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.